Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, February 28, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Richard Brookheiser and Dale Gregory discuss New York's Governor Morris's dramatic final years, including his relationship with Thomas Jefferson's daughter and his reaction to the death of his best friend, Alexander Hamilton. So Governor Morris, he's... Um He's born to a wealthy, politically connected family in New York, what's now the Bronx. The Morrisania neighborhood of the Bronx is where their estate was. And uh, he's the last son of the family. Uh, When he becomes an adult, he gets into politics as sort of a family inheritance. His grandfather was the colonial governor of New Jersey. His uncle was the colonial acting governor of Pennsylvania. His father was a colonial judge. So this is in his blood. But uh, when the American Revolution begins, he becomes a patriot because he thinks independence is the way to fulfill American greatness. And he puts his shoulder to the wheel. He's elected to the Continental Congress. Uh, He reports to Congress on the condition of the army at Valley Forge. And he, he urges them to help the army out. He works with Robert Morris to try and pay for the revolution the best way they possibly can. And by scrimping and saving and some not very legal maneuvers, they manage to do it almost. Uh, then after the war, um, he loses his leg. Uh, this was in a carriage accident. He, he caught his foot in a spinning carriage wheel, although there is a story that he lost it jumping out a girlfriend's window. Uh, This was a married girlfriend. Um, John Jay wrote him a letter saying, I've heard that a married woman after much use of your legs caused you to cut off one. (laughs) So this is how the founders uh, teased each other. Uh, Then in 1787, he's uh, sent to the Constitutional Convention, not as a delegate from New York, but from Pennsylvania, because he's been living and working in Philadelphia. He gives more speeches than any other delegate, even though he misses an entire month. And he is on the Committee of Style, whose job is to produce the final draft, and he is the one who does it. So the Uh, phrasing of the Constitution, not the provisions, but the way they're arranged and and phrased, and also the entire preamble, this was all written by him. And James Madison would later say that the polish of the Constitution is owing to the pen of Mr. Morris. A better choice could not have been made. Then in 1789, he goes to France for what he hopes will be his excellent adventure. He's always wanted to go to Europe. He thinks of himself as a cosmopolitan, and so he wants to be one for once in his life. And uh, he, he, he goes there as Robert Morris's business partner to tend uh, Morris's investments, but he arrives months before the beginning of the French Revolution. So he is in Paris during the whole of the first four years of that revolution, and he keeps a diary which is a fascinating record of what goes on. It's like 
like Alan First or Christopher Isherwood. It's someone in the middle of a of a vortex that's sucking everything down and transforming it, and he's observing it day by day. Uh, He has immunity as an American and then ultimately as our minister to France, so he has diplomatic immunity. But uh, there are times when he himself was at risk. Uh, He was hiding aristocrats who were uh, being sentenced to death. He would hide them in his house. Uh, they tried to search his house at one point, and, he, and he, he bluffed the searchers out of it. He bullied them out of it. Uh, so there were a lot of close shaves. And then after he leaves, he spends a few more years going around Europe, uh, witnessing the progress of the revolutionary and early Napoleonic Wars. And then at the end of the 1790s, he comes back home, back to New York, back to the United States, and this is where we are now. So now there's a different kind of government or the government's forming. There's, um, why don't you describe the, the situation, the situation right. and how Hamilton comes into the picture right. with. Right. Um, so uh, Morris wrote the constitution, right? So he knows, <laughs> he knows what's in it. And, and, you know, he has an idea of what the system of government will be. But one thing that isn't in the Constitution and that wasn't anticipated by any of the founding fathers was partisan politics. You know, parties are mentioned nowhere in the Constitution. Uh, and in fact, all the found, most of the founders make statements about how parties are bad things. I would never belong to a party. Uh, that, that would be such a terrible thing. But within a couple of years, two parties have sprung up. There is the Federalist Party of George Washington, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton. Then there is the Republican Party of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. That's today's Democrats. The current Republican Party starts in the 1850s. It's a different thing. But in those days, what we now call the Democratic Party called itself the Republican Party. And uh, they are really going at it bitterly. Now, uh, Morris, uh, despite his few years in Pennsylvania, he's born and raised in New York, and New York is where he goes back to after he comes from Europe. So he hooks up with people that he knew from his earliest days in New York, and one of them is Alexander Hamilton. Uh, They both went to King's College, now Columbia, not at the same time, but uh, they had that uh, uh, tie. They, they They were both lawyers in private practice in New York, uh, as lawyers, they will sometimes face each other in court. Sometimes they'll work together on the same side of, uh, of trials. Uh, but they're also both Federalists. Uh, Hamilton is a leader in the Federalist Party, and Morris uh, agrees to be elected senator from New York shortly after he comes back. There, there was a, um, a senator who retired midway through his term, so the legislature had to, had to pick a new guy and, and Morris is the man they pick. So uh, uh, these are very stressful times for all Federalists and for Alexander Hamilton because the party is heading for a great defeat. Um, you know, I don't want to go into all the, the, the details of the Adams administration, but, but the, politics, the politics is incredibly acrid. 
You know, when we wring our hands now about, oh, isn't it terrible what, you know, Trump says or what his enemies say and all this kind of stuff, it was much worse then. Now, it was really, I, I, no, I want to stress this because it, it should make people maybe feel a little but better. Didn't you the politics then, the politics then was much worse than now. Now, you illustrated this in your book, didn't you, about a, a, a fight in the cloakroom with, with two, two... Oh, yeah, yeah. There were two congressmen, one Republican, one Federalist, and um, the, uh, the uh, Federalist spit in the Republican's face, and then the Republican um, grabbed some tongs from the, the fireplace in the House and went after the Federalist guy... Uh, you know, and they had to be pulled apart. I mean, in a cloakroom. Well, it started in a cloakroom and it ended up on the floor of the house. And this was, you know, this was like a brawl on the floor of the house. But that wasn't the worst. Uh, they killed each other, right? I mean, when, when Dick Cheney shot that man, it was an accident and he lived. But people, gentlemen, fought duels. You know, and you were not supposed to fight a duel over politics. You know, you couldn't challenge a man to a duel because he said you were wrong. But if he said you were a villain or dishonorable or a scoundrel or a a liar, I mean, that would trigger a duel, an affair of honor. And duels were illegal everywhere. They were considered murders under the law. They were never prosecuted because no jury would convict. You know, there'd just be enough people on the jury to say, "Well, that's what that's what gentlemen do." So you could never you could never get a conviction. Um, uh, we we all know what happened to Alexander Hamilton. We'll we'll describe that in more detail. He's not the only signer of the Constitution who was killed in a duel. There was another one, Richard Spate of North Carolina, killed in a duel. Uh, a man that Thomas Jefferson would put on the Supreme Court after he's president, a New Yorker named Brockholz Livingston. Uh, his nose was pulled by a Federalist named the last name of Jones. So Livingston, that was an insult, deliberate insult. Livingston challenged him to a duel. Uh, he shot Jones in the groin. He bled out in five minutes. Uh, but Jefferson put him on the Supreme Court. And this never came up in a confirmation hearing or anything. <laughs> Uh, and people, you know, this is what this is what gentlemen uh, did. So it was a it was a profoundly bitter time that he's coming back to. And indeed, the Federalists will get cleaned out in the election of 1800. It is a blue wave election. They lose the White House. John Adams loses to Thomas Jefferson. They lose both houses of Congress. The Senate and the House of Representatives both flip. So the Federalist Party, the party of Washington, the party that had gotten the government going, uh, is thrown out. And Governor Morris is is one of the few, you know, a minority now in the Senate. Now, how did he feel about being a senator? Well, he, you know, he he did his job. Uh, He took it seriously. Um, He... uh, he tried to, to make what political hay he could for his party. Um, he supported uh, a resolution uh, that was uh, made by a, a Federalist senator designed to embarrass the Jefferson administration. It was trying to, um, trying to embarrass the Jefferson administration into conquering or buying the French territory of Louisiana. 
uh, which Jefferson was actually going to be able to do, but he hadn't done it yet. So the Federalists were trying to, to get out ahead of him. And, and this, I have to say, is one of the worst things my, my hero ever says, because in the course of speaking for this revolution, resolution, he says one reason we have to acquire Louisiana is to remove it as a possible refuge for runaway slaves. You know, if slaves are, are in the American South and they hope to escape by fleeing across the Mississippi River, we have to own that territory so they will not have a prospect of it. And, you know, this is very painful because uh, Morris had denounced uh, slavery at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, he said, you know, why do we uh, uh, let uh, slave states count three-fifths of a slave uh, for their representation in the House and in the Electoral College? They shouldn't be able to do this. But it seems like once that was done, uh, I guess he took the view, okay, all right, now, now I'll use it to try and stick it to the other, to the other party. And, you know, it's sad. It was a, it was a cynical argument. But uh, nothing works for the Federalists. And they not only do they get cleaned out in the election of 1800, they do even worse in the election of 1802, the midterm elections. And the New York State Legislature um, flips, and they picked senators in those days. So Morris's term as a senator ends in 1802. So how does he... How does he find out about Hamilton's death? Okay, well, that's, that's <clears throat> two years on. And he, what he does after he leaves the Senate is he just, you know, he resumes uh, a little practice of law. He lives up in his estate uh, in north of the city in what's now the Bronx, and he enjoys himself. Which he's <laughs> Yankee all- Stadium. <laughs> yes, right, that's, that, that's part of it. Uh, does anybody know Brook Avenue in the Bronx? Yeah, that runs over what was a brook that bisected the Morris estate. I guess it's in a pipe down there somewhere, unfortunately. But uh, so, you know, he's, he's, he's you know, living in, in his, um, not retirement exactly, but out, out of public life. And then one day in the summer of uh, 1804, July, uh, he hears from a nephew of his, Hamilton's dead, he's been shot. And uh, so Morris uh, gets in one of his boats and he sails down to New York City, which takes about 90 minutes in those days. And he finds that, that Hamilton has been shot, although he is still alive. He's uh, in what's now Greenwich Village in a house. He's been rowed back across the Hudson from the New Jersey shore where he had his duel with Aaron Burr. And it takes Hamilton... Uh, over 30 hours to die. And so Morris is there at his deathbed. Uh, In his diary, uh, he writes about uh, Hamilton's wife being brought down to see him and her distress and Hamilton's children also being brought in to see him. And at one point, he says, it just becomes too much for me. I have to to walk in the garden. I've got to compose myself. Um, So he's there. Uh, he's there as his friend and ally um, is is dying. And then he is asked afterwards to give the eulogy at Trinity Church. That's where the uh, the burial will take place. That's where he, he still is, where his grave is. And this assignment troubles him because he feels there are certain things he has to he has to slide over. He knows that you know, Hamilton accomplished a lot in his life, uh, but he also made certain political mistakes. 
Um, he can't allude to those. Uh, he also wants to be careful not to... Uh, he, he has to be very delicate about the fact that he's been killed in a duel. And this is something that's technically illegal. Uh, it's also obviously unchristian, and this is going to be a burial in the Episcopal Church. Uh, but he, he, doesn't, he also doesn't want to abuse Aaron Burr because he says, well, Burr was, uh, Burr was just behaving as a gentleman would behave, and I don't want to you know, rouse the passions of the audience uh, against Burr. So he's, um, he's kind of oppressed by this assignment. He's, he's oppressed because this is a man he's been close to for years who's been cut short, and then he's on the spot to do the eulogy, and he has, you know, he has these various landmines that he doesn't want to, to step into. So um, he, he gives the speech. Uh, he writes afterwards in his diary that he was unhappy with his performance, um, the crowd was too big. Only 10% of them could hear him. Um, I think that's kind of speaker's attitude. You know, you, you can be very tough on yourself. Uh, the, the, most, um, the most interesting thing I think he said in the speech was that uh, he urged the crowd not to do anything that would break the law. You know, in your grief, don't do anything that would disturb the peace or break the law. And from Hamilton, although through my lips, hear this message, respect yourselves. So he's trying to calm the crowd down. And then in his diary afterwards, he writes, I could have driven them absolutely mad. You know, if he'd been like Mark Anthony, could have stirred them up, but he tried not to do that. Uh, so that... You know, when I was writing this book, that, that was a, a painful thing to recount. And there's another painful thing, which I, I discovered a little later. And this was about a week afterwards. Uh, Morris runs into uh, another friend of Hamilton's, a man named Matthew Clarkson, also a New Yorker, also someone who spent time in Philadelphia and was actually mayor of Philadelphia for a while in the 1790s. Now, Matthew Clarkson had fought at the Battle of Saratoga and at Yorktown. When he was mayor of Philadelphia, there was a yellow fever epidemic, which killed 5,000 people out of 30,000. Everybody who could leave Philadelphia did. They just took off. The whole federal government took off. The city was being run by Mayor Clarkson, a merchant, and two black ministers. They formed a committee of safety. They were like the last people to keep order in this stricken city. And I I say all this because I think we can prove that Matthew Clarkson was a brave man, right? So, but he meets Morris after Hamilton's dead, and he's weeping. There are tears streaming down his face. This is all from Morris's diary. And Clarkson said, if we were brave, we would defy this custom, but we're all cowards. So that shows you the power that the social custom of dueling had, just the social pressure. People who knew it was wrong, people who felt it was wrong, they felt they had to go through with it anyway. So that's the, uh, the very sad ending of his connection with Alexander Hamilton, yeah. whom he'd known for so many years. Now, didn't he help take care of his Hamilton's family? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He got up a fund... Um, 
to help them out. Now, now uh, Betsy Hamilton's father, Philip Schuyler, was thought to be a very wealthy man, but he, he dies shortly after Hamilton does of, of natural causes, and it turns out he's not as rich as everybody thought he was. So, so Betsy is in a bad way, and Governor Morris uh, gets up a fund uh, so friends of Hamilton can contribute and, and help you know, sustain her and her family. Now, and that reminds me, he also helped Robert Morris, who was in debtor's prison. For- oh, that's right. Yes, his former patron, his former boss, at one point the wealthiest man in America. But, you know, Morris, when he lost money, he always doubled down. You know, he just like, like kept increasing his bets and, and diversifying. And then finally, the whole thing just collapsed. Um, when it collapsed, he owed 20 times as much as he had. I mean, he was grossly overextended. So he went to, to debtor's prison. And there's, there's a very moving description of, of Governor Morris visiting him there. And, and he does, again, he, he, he raises money to help him out. And, and he says, you know, I just tried to be amusing. I just tried to amuse him and his wife to try and take their minds off, off all this trouble. So, you know, that's one thing I like about him. He's, he's a guy who had some very bad things happen to him in his life, and, and he understands that, and he sympathizes with that, and he, and he tries to help people similarly placed. But now we're coming to a happy thing. Well, right? before Which we is- do, I just want to... It is the big part of this program we're coming to. But before we do that, I, I just... Um, he also was asked to give the eulogy at Washington's funeral. Right, which would have been earlier, back, back yeah. in 1799. Well, you know, they go to him because he's very well-spoken. Um, if you read uh, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, uh, some of, certainly the only funny stuff in it is, is from Governor Morris. He, tells a couple, he slips a couple of jokes in. Uh, he can also be very eloquent. Uh, he can... Um, you know, he can think on his feet. He's a good courtroom lawyer. So, so this is an assignment that, that tends to come his way. Uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not a great fan of his eulogies because I think he, because they were so important, I think he maybe choked a little bit. Uh, I, I think he's much better in his diary or in his letters when he's a little more unbuttoned and he can just let his, you know, just let the words and the thoughts flow. Okay. So let's move on to Anne Carrie Randolph, who right. we end up calling her Nancy. Right. Tell us all about her and her family and what happened to her and how Gouverneur Morris met her. Well, this, this will end in the story of his marriage. And um, may not be a guy you'd think who would get married. He's been playing the field all his single life. Uh, when he's in France, he had a number of lovers. Uh, most of them married. His main girlfriend was a countess, uh, Adelaide de la Flau. One of her other lovers was Talleyrand. So she had a husband, she had Talleyrand, she had Morris, and then she got an English lord also in there. So it was, you know, traffic jams often at, uh, at, at her apartment. Uh, and then when he comes back to America, he has uh, some other lovers here. Um, but then uh, in 1809, he is looking for a housekeeper. 
you know, here he is up in the Bronx and he's got a number of servants and, and you know, who's going to run, who's going to run his establishment. And his sort of his ideal would be a gentlewoman in distressed circumstances. You know, distressed because why else would such a person hire herself out as a housekeeper, but a gentlewoman because, you know, you want someone to the manor born who can like tell all these, you know, drunken Irishmen or whoever it is, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. So he learns of uh, a Virginian who's living in a boarding house in New York. You gave her name, Nancy Randolph. And he actually met her when she was a girl because in, in uh, 1788, he went down to Virginia on some business for Robert Morris and he stayed with her parents. Um, so he, he'd met her way back when. So now, you know, she's an adult. Um, he, he comes to see her and he hires her. And then as we read um, his letters to her, at some point, she raises the subject of why it is she's living in this boarding house. Why isn't she back in old, old Virginia with her Randolph family? Well, the story goes back. This goes back to uh, what became a, a notorious legal case in Virginia. It was called Commonwealth v. Randolph. And I actually wrote about it again in my John Marshall biography. Here's, here's how that happened. The Randolphs were one of the largest and most eminent families of Virginia. They were a first family of Virginia, and they were very numerous. There were many Randolphs. And so uh, a man named Richard Randolph marries a cousin, Judith Randolph, and her sister is Nancy Randolph. So this is the husband, wife, and the younger sister-in-law, all surnamed Randolph. And then one evening, they are visiting um, some other relatives of theirs at their plantation, and a scream is heard in the night. Then the next morning, a dead white newborn is found on the woodpile by the slaves. So what happened? How How did this infant get there? Well, People begin gossiping. People begin talking. And they say, well, Nancy, you know, she looked kind of ill when she showed up. And uh, some other people say, well, she also looked kind of round when she showed up. And maybe she was, uh, has, hasn't she been kind of affectionate with, towards her brother-in-law, Richard? Uh, so the story is that uh, Richard and Nancy had an affair This was their baby, which they exposed in order to kill it uh, as it was born. Now, as you can imagine, this is a a huge scandal. This is like midnight in the garden of good and evil uh, in Virginia. So Richard Randolph uh, appears at the uh, uh, regular sitting of the county court, and he says, anybody who has any evidence against me about anything, I welcome them to, uh, to appear and bring it to the attention of the, uh, of the law. And he retains, as his lawyers, the greatest dream team in American history. He hires Patrick Henry and John Marshall to defend him. <laughs> so Patrick Henry, uh, there is a trial. There is a hearing. And Patrick Henry cross-examines the witnesses. Um, 
One, one way he earns his money, there's, there's a woman on the stand who claims that she saw Nancy Randolph and that her, you know, her stomach was, was swollen, it was round. So, so Patrick Henry examines her and he says, well, where, where did you see this? How did you see this? Well, she was, uh, she was in her room at the plantation, you know, she was changing her clothes. Oh, did you, did, uh, did you were you in the room? No, I, look, I looked through the door. Through the door? Uh, uh, through the crack in the door. And he says, and which eye did you peep with? And then he turned to the jury and said, God save us from eavesdroppers. You know, which is not an argument, but it just destroyed the witness. Just destroyed the credibility of the witness. So Henry, you know, does his courtroom, does his courtroom magic. And we have Marshall's notes. Uh, I don't think Marshall argued it before a jury, but this is what he would have been prepared to say to the jury. And he looked at every piece of evidence and he was prepared to show that it had an innocent interpretation. You know, he says, oh, all right, people are saying that Richard Richard and Nancy were too friendly. They were too familiar. But if they'd had an illicit relationship, wouldn't they have concealed it? Right? Doesn't the very fact that they were friendly and affectionate prove that it must have been innocent? Okay, so he, he's going through every piece of evidence and just turning around and saying, look, it has an innocent interpretation, which is all he needs to get, Richard, to get his client off. Wasn't um, Theodoric, uh, Richard's younger brother, supposed to have been in love with her? And there was Okay, a- yes, there are more Randolphs. There, yeah, every time you turn around, <laughs> there's another one. Uh, yes, Richard Randolph had, uh, had two brothers. One was Theodoric, who was dying of tuberculosis. And Nancy's story later on would be, no, I was never in love with Richard. I, it was Theodoric I was in love with, and, and he was the father of my child, not Richard. There's a third brother named John, whom we will, whom we will get to a moment later. So thanks to Patrick Henry and, and John Marshall, uh, the jury um, doesn't even leave the box. They just sit for 15 minutes and chat, and then they decide um, he, he's acquitted. Um, Nothing, nothing proven here. But there's still a cloud over Nancy. So she continues to live. She lives with uh, her sister, Judith. Uh, Richard uh, dies after a few years. And then they move in with the surviving brother, John. And then early in the 1800s, John kicks Nancy out of the house. We don't know why, but he just kicks her out of the house and she has to fend for herself. Uh, she comes north. Uh, at one point, she asked John for money, $20. He won't give it to her. Uh, by 1809, she ends up in the boarding house where Governor Morris finds and hires her. And then everything I've just been telling you, she tells to him. Now, how did he find her in the boarding house? We don't know. Okay. We don't know. Uh, I found that like a couple weeks before... He was on a trip to Albany, and he just says in his diary, I met Mr. So-and-so from Virginia. So I thought, well, maybe this guy said something to him, but I don't know. No idea. And Nancy, in telling him the story, you know, it's not like this was a secret story, right? This had been like the talk of Virginia years earlier, so Morris had probably heard something about it, so it wasn't absolutely new to him. But so she tells him, she tells him this tale. And this doesn't faze him because on uh, Christmas Day of 1809, uh, he invites some of his family to come to Morrisania. 
and one of them is an Episcopal clergyman and uh, an in-law of his, brother-in-law of his, and he asks him to marry himself to Nancy Randolph. So they are married uh, in this surprise ceremony. Uh, This doesn't please his nieces and nephews because they were hoping to inherit um, his, his estate. And one of them, one niece, was unwise enough to write him and say, why did you do this? And he wrote her back and he said, if the world was to have married my wife, I would, of course, have asked their opinion. <laughs> but, you know, since it's me, I didn't. Uh, so, okay, so there he is, happily married. And then uh, John Randolph, you already mentioned him. Well, he comes to New York, and this is to, to take care of a, a younger Randolph, a nephew of his, an unfortunate young man uh, who, who is... Um, He's deaf and he's, he's dumb. You know, he needs special education. And John is trying to arrange for that in New York. And so he writes, uh, he writes Governor Morris, whom he knows slightly. Uh, you know, I'm coming to New York, hope to see you. Morris says, well, please stay with us. So he does. And then before he leaves to go back to Virginia, he writes a poisonous letter to Nancy Morris. And he says, I come north, and what do I find? I find you have stuck your fangs into a man, you know, your husband who trusts you. You know, be careful lest he die in his sleep. You know what I mean. So he's accusing her. He's saying, you're you're going to poison him. And he, he also tells her, you killed my brother Richard. You poisoned him. So he's accusing her of, of being a murderess and, and plotting the murder of, of her husband. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just a demented attack. Why did he write it? Um, old grudges against Nancy. Uh, by this point in his life, he's taking opium. Uh, he was always a little nuts. I mean, he's a brilliant. He, he's brilliant. He's, he's a famous congressman. People are afraid of him on the floor because he will just cut you to ribbons if he can. But he was always just a bit unbalanced. And, you know, this this all came out in this letter. And so uh, what Nancy does is she handwrites a 20-page response and copies it, copies it, and sends copies to people in Virginia to defend herself. And Morris backs her up. I mean, he just, you know, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't buy it. And, And he... He says in a letter to someone else, well, you know, Nancy told me all this uh, years ago, and I'm, I'm just not, uh, not paying any attention. And so he, stick, he, he, he sticks by his wife. They have a son. Uh, he's, he's, he's delighted to be a father. You know, he's kind of, kind of an older father, but um, it just thrills him, and he's just uh, loyal to her for the rest of his life. And then the son ends up, Working, being the head of a railroad? Or? Well, he, um, he, yes, he lives to see uh, railroads coming in. And so, yes, he will, he will go into the railroad business and he'll actually sell off parts of the estate um, uh, to a railroad for a right of way. But um, there's another form of transportation uh, which Morris, uh, Governor Morris is interested in before that, and that is the Erie Canal. And boats. Well, yes, boats, tra- boats are what travels canals. But now, 
Okay, the, the, one of the big questions for early America is the Appalachian Mountains, right? I mean, they go from northern Georgia uh, right up through Pennsylvania. And there they sit. And how do you get from the coast to the interior? I mean, you, you, can, you can sail around to New Orleans or Pensacola and come in that way, but that's a big schlep. Uh, is there any more direct route? And, and people, you know, they think of this. George Washington thinks of this. Can there be canals over the Appalachians? Uh, John Marshall's father, uh, John Marshall himself, thinks of this. But New York is favored by having a gap in these mountains. They, they, they don't cut across the whole state. I mean, they're, they're a little in the southern tier, but then there's a pretty flat stretch from Albany all the way to what's now Buffalo. And people notice this back in colonial times. And among the people who noticed it later on was Governor Morris. Uh, when he was in Europe, he saw a canal that cuts across Scotland uh, that goes from the North Sea to the Firth of Forth. I think it's called the Firth of Forth Canal. That's in one of Hitchcock's films, 39 Steps. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I think it, it was 39 Steps. Before he saw the movie, he saw the canal. And he, <laughs> you know, and, and th- this was very impressive because you don't have to go all the way, you know, around the top of Scotland to, to get to the other side. And he thought... Suppose we could have this in New York. So this becomes a thing with him. I mean, he talks about it even before he goes to Europe. He's talking about it even in the Revolution. If we could do this, if we could put this across the state. You know, and part of it, the Mohawk River goes part of the way, so that's kind of the encouragement. But then you have to dig the canal for for the rest of it and carry it on. So the two people who are pushing this in the 1800s and the early 18-teens are Governor Morris and DeWitt Clinton, who is the new political power in New York. And what's interesting is they're in two different parties. Morris is still a Federalist. Clinton is in the Republican Party. But they're both New Yorkers. They're New York patriots. They want to develop the state. So they're working together on this canal idea. And uh, so a commission is formed to try and plan this thing. They decide to take a trip going across the state to scout the route. Um, Clinton writes very entertainingly in his diary about the miserable accommodations that he and his fellow commissioners found. I mean, inns with roaches and rats and bats and just vermin and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Morris took a carriage with his French cook, so he had, <laughs> he had a better time of it. But, you know, they're, they're looking over the route, they're seeing what the obstacles are, and they really, they really get this going. And then the two of them go to Washington in 1811 to ask the federal government for help. And James Madison, the president, he's kind of encouraging. And Albert Galton, the treasury secretary, thinks of a way to fund it. You know, if we sell public land in, you know, what's now Indiana, we could raise enough money and, you know, maybe that could could pay for this and other canals. But Congress blocks it. Don't want to do it. And part of it, I think, is jealousy of New York. You know, New York is already growing. Why should we help them grow faster? So then uh, the New Yorkers decide to go it on their own. And Morris says, we can raise the money ourselves. You know, we're a big state. We already have banks here. We've got enough wealthy people. We can raise the money ourselves. And if we build this thing in sections, 
the tolls that we collect on the parts that we finished will help pay for the rest. I mean, it's really a very visionary thing. And he turns out to be right. Now, the canal is finally finished in 1825. This is um, nine years uh, after his death. He never sees the canal finish. Mm -hmm. But it was the great maker of the fortune of this state because it meant the produce of what is now the Midwest, it was going to come to New York City. It wasn't going to go anywhere else. Sorry, Virginia. It wasn't going to go to Alexandria. Sorry, even Baltimore. I mean, you were going to build a railroad, but we got the canal first. And it was just the the price of getting a load of flour uh, from Midwestern wheat to the Atlantic. It it, it was cut, um, you know, 90%. It was just a huge saving and a great benefit to New York, and it paid itself off. So... um, Good for him for thinking of that. Now, originally, didn't he start by exploring upstate? And- oh, yeah, yeah. He loved, well, he loved, I told you about his French cook, but he also likes to rough it. I mean, he, there's one account of him uh, piloting a boat on Lake Ontario in a storm. And one of his passengers, you know, was just like scared to death and then screaming and shouting and then saying afterward, I'm, I'm never going to do this with you again. But Morris loved it. And I think, you know, partly it's compensation for his leg. All right, I, I lost my leg. But that doesn't mean I can't be out in the outdoors. And, and, and he also gets himself a house, um, it's, which is still there. It's north of the Adirondacks. It's practically uh, uh, on the St. Lawrence River. It's, it's way up there. But that's his, um, that was his sort of summer house and fishing retreat. And I found there was a wonderful ghost story that uh, supposedly Nancy was up there after he died and uh, some Frenchman came banging on the door and saying, well, we have, we're looking for money that he took from France when he was over there. And Morris stepped out of a painting and chased them away. <laughs> well, before we move on to the questions, I just want to point out one of my favorite moments in this book that we struggled to get up on the stage. Um, when he was in Valley Forge, when he was in, uh, at the Constitutional Convention with George Washington, he and George Washington, it was, it was very hot. It was in the summer. They went for a break and went to Valley Forge to go fishing, trout fishing. And I, that's in your book, and I always wondered... What did they talk about? Well, they must have talked a little bit about what it was like in the winter. Their memories. No, no, re- yeah, really. Uh, of Valley you know, Forge. How, how awful that was and how hard that was. And, you know, Washington had to hold everything together, and Morris saw him doing it and tried to get Congress to help. And now here, it must have, it must have been kind of hopeful. You know, now it's summer. Now we're trout fishing. Now we're trying to figure out a new system of government for this country. But, you know, so we, we did win. I mean, we went through that awful time, but, but we came through it. And that's, that's the final thing I love about this guy. He, you know, he loses his leg. Um, he had an accident when he was a boy. He burned all the flesh off one of his arms with a boiling tea kettle that knocked over. Um, he lives through the French Revolution. He, he sees friend, friends of his are guillotined, taken to the guillotine. 
he sees the revolutionary wars and the destruction in Europe. He sees the destruction and the war here, um, not just Valley Forge, but also upstate New York. But through all this, there, there's just something about him. His temperament is never flattened, never despairs, never depressed. He, he, he'll just keep coming back and living the next thing, living the next day, uh, and enjoying himself as much as he can. Well, thank you, Rick. We're going to go on to questions, but let's just give him a hand for this. Okay, I'm just going to read. Um, okay. Did Morris have any connection or relationship with Aaron Burr before the duel with Hamilton? What about after? I don't know about before. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, they were all lawyers, and there were only like 30 lawyers in the whole city. So, uh, you know, it was a very small legal world, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure they would have encountered each other in court. Did Morris discuss this dream of New York being a financial capital with Hamilton? I have no, you know, there's no written record of it, but, you know, certainly these, these two guys were very economically minded and, and you know, very similar in their, in their conclusions and their hopes. So I wouldn't be at all surprised, um, either both in the revolution itself when they encounter each other as young men, uh, and also, even after uh, Morris comes back. What was Gouverneur Morris's reputation upon his death? Well, um, oh, one thing he did, wasn't he the first president of this organization? <laughs> yes, I, be- I believe he was. First, second. First, second. Third? <laughs> well, okay, early, early on. So... But, I mean, that's an honorific. I mean, they, they wanted him because they thought he was, was competent, but it's also, you know, they wanted him because he's a big deal and, you know, it would be a, a good reflection upon, upon the historical society to have him. So I, I, I think he was an honored figure in New York and in New York City. How much of the Federalist ideology that Morris supported lives on in the work of John Marshall or the Supreme Court? Well, I think what Marshall does is he provides a legal armature for a lot of the economic ideas that Federalists like Hamilton and Morris had. Uh, Some of Marshall's rulings... Uh, involving the contract clause like Fletcher v. Pack and Dartmouth v. Woodward. I mean, this um, he, he's, he, he thinks Article 1, Section 10, where states are forbidden from impairing the obligation of contracts, Marshall calls that a Bill of Rights, you know, which is kind of startling to us. It's not free press or no unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, Marshall is saying it's the contract clause. That's the real Bill of Rights. And, and so this is like putting in legal black and white the kind of economic thinking that uh, Morris and Hamilton did. What did Nancy do after Gouverneur Morris passed away and she had a small child to take care of? She had a tough time. <clears throat> she really worked to hold it together. Uh, Morris, she found, had some debts. Uh, he had signed an obligation by... Uh, one of his uh, nephews, a guy named Ogden, who was uh, a scoundrel, uh, 
Uh, so this was a bad note, but he had endorsed it, so he was liable for it. Um, she uh, tried. She rented out portions of the estate. Uh, she sued people for debts that he hadn't bothered about. Um, she hired one of Hamilton's sons to be her lawyer, and then um, he sued her because uh, he claimed she wasn't paying him fast enough. I mean, she really scrimped and saved and scrambled to try and keep this together, but she was finally able to pass the estate on to her son. The other thing she does is she reads his diaries. And there's some cross-outs in there. <laughs> probably, you know, probably by her, there's a visit to a brothel that he made in um, Amsterdam that's gone. I think the page is torn out. We're just There's like a later reference that you know, suggests that this was what was being described. But she left a lot in. So she knew who she married. She knew who he was. And I guess she, she just was, took out the rawest stuff, maybe. She was beautiful, too. She had been beautiful. Oh, yes, there's a picture of her um, when she marries him. She's cute. <laughs> no, she is. She also looks like the cat that ate the canary. I mean, she's very happy to, to, to be Mrs. Mrs. Morris. How long did Gouverneur Morris live? How did he spend his later years? Well, we've talked about this a little. And what were his thoughts on the way the nation was growing and evolving in those early decades? Well, he's 64 when he dies. He dies in the room he was born in, in his house in Morrisania. And he says, you know, 64 years ago, it pleased the Lord to call me into existence in this room. And now it uh, pleases him to call me out of it. Uh, he had to be very stoical at the end. He died of, uh, you know, complications of gout. He had a blockage in his urethra. Um, I'll say no more. It was painful. But he, uh, you know, he kept up his stoicism to the end. Morris favored secession of New England states in 1814. True? Please explain how the ardent nationalist who wrote the preamble of the Constitution reversed his views near the end of his life? I wish I could entirely. (laughs) Um, The Federalist Party became very bitter by the War of 1812. Hmm. They'd opposed it. Every Federalist congressman had voted against the Declaration of War. And many of them became secessionists and... Well, the only reason they weren't traitors is there was no actual opportunity to commit treason. But they certainly... Many of them hoped that the country would split up and that the northern virtuous part of it would ally itself uh, with England. Uh, most of these uh, fire eaters were, were in New England, but Governor Morris was as out there as any of them. And I think his attitude was, you know, I wrote this constitution. Doesn't work. Hasn't worked. Look what's happened. Time to scrap it and start all over. I mean, it's, it's that radical. And I think that's the vice of a virtue of his. I mean, one of his great virtues is he'll, he'll think his own thoughts. He doesn't care what other people think. Um, he'll think boldly. But sometimes people who do that go off the rails. And, and he certainly did in the War of 1812. All I can say for him in his defense is that after the war is over, he forgets it all. You know, he just leaves it. And he says... All right, now now it's time to think of our country again, and it, it doesn't matter 
whether the people who run it wear a Federalist or a Republican cloak. That's a quote from one of his letters. So at least he's not committed to his uh, uh, worst thoughts. Do you believe Hamilton deliberately missed Burr in the duel? Well, you know, we don't know. Well, yes, Hamilton did say he was going he was going to waste his shot. He did say he was going to waste his shot. What we don't what I don't know is how clearly was he thinking before this duel. And my sense is not very or or not not as clearly as he could. I think he was depressed at the end of his life. Uh, his eldest son had been killed in a duel three years earlier. Uh, he had advised his eldest son uh, to waste his first shot in that duel, and then he'd been shot and killed. Um, and, you know, my, my whole reading of Hamilton is that he, uh, in his private life, he, he tried to be better than his own father who had abandoned him. And, and in many ways he was. I mean, he had, he had, uh, he had eight children. He was very good to them. You know, they all remembered uh, occasions of him being with them. He was a solicitous parent. But then he, um, you know, he tells his eldest son, well, you have to fight this duel, but it wouldn't be unchristian to kill a man, so you've got to waste your first shot. And then his eldest son is killed. So he must have unconsciously thought, because I don't think he was a self-reflective man, but how could he avoid thinking somewhere, how am I better than my father? My father didn't get me killed, but this is what I've done to my own son. That had to be in there somewhere. So I, so I, I, I just think his judgment was probably off. Do you know any? Do you know of any historic markers or plaques that reference Gouverneur Morris in New York? If not, where would be the best place for one? Well, if you go up to the Bronx, I think it's the um, 135th Street or 138th Street. 138th Street and Brook Avenue, and you've got to walk a couple blocks east and a couple blocks north, and there's a, an Episcopal church there, St. Anne's Church, uh, where I, I I went there when I was writing the book, and the, the rector very kindly showed me around. And uh, in the church is uh, the stone over his grave, which his Nancy put there. And then outside there is a... Um, there is a uh, memorial that the state of New York put up, just just listing the things he did, which you can read from the you know uh, sidewalk. But you know, if you go inside this church, and it's 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 like a pre-Anglo um, Catholic Episcopal church, so it's very simple. Um, it's not not like incense or anything like that. It's a, sim- a large kind of simple building. And there are the various plaques for all, all the eccentric members of the Morris family uh, on the walls. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about it to me is nobody goes there. I mean, it's not on guidebooks. And I don't think he'd care. I don't think he'd care because he enjoyed his life. I enjoyed my life. Let people enjoy theirs. Are there any living descendants of Morris? And if so, are they actually involved in keeping his legacy alive? I bet there are. I I don't know for sure. But he did have, you know, he had a son. And I do know there was a writer, kind of the turn of the 19th, 20th century, named Governor Morris, who wrote like popular 
novels. I, I've never read any of them, but you know, he comes up in Wikipedia, and he's a he's some sort of grand or great grandson. Um, his he had a um, a granddaughter who published his diaries, and then a great granddaughter who published the European diaries and edited them uh, in the 1930s. She did a terrific job. It's two volumes. I mean, long out of print, but you can get them from a Libris or you know one of those one of those services. And uh, you know, his whole account of just that time he spent in France and seeing this whole revolution, it, it's just a a very dramatic story. It's like, you know, American goes to Europe to find love and he finds death instead. It's like, surprise, uh, here's what we have for you. And um, But it's all down there. It's all down there in the diary, brilliantly edited. And he didn't think that the French really would be able to govern. No, he didn't. He liked the French. I mean, he certainly liked French women, but, but he, no, he liked the French. He, but, but he just thought they're not ready for this. They have no experience of it, and, and uh, their temperament is not suited to it. Unlike mine, he would say. <laughs> well, it's all in the book, and Rick, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.